The following is a Thunderbolt West Media production. Improving shortwave reception and also building a simple rocket stove. You are listening to the Living Off-Grid Power and Information Show with Jim Calhoun. The storm was coming, the sky was on fire, fear was in their eyes. It's my opinion that we should be prepared to lean on our faith and be able to step out on the sea. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Off-Grid Power and Information Show. I'm your host, Jim Calhoun. This show features off-grid topics such as creating your own power, gardening, homesteading, and other issues related to off-grid living. I also seek to educate my listeners about survival and prepping, and I'll talk about anything from government corruption to chemtrails. Also, I feel that our constitutional republic is worth saving so I never miss an opportunity to do my part in helping to save our republic. I have two main goals for this show. Number one, to help you build your faith in God. And number two, to help each listener become as self-sufficient as possible. This show comes to you from the Harmony Barn Studios, located near Hershey, Nebraska, in the United States of America. The Living Off-Grid Power and Information Show is aired on KYAH, AM 540 in Delta, Utah, Utah's Talk Authority. Also, the show can be heard on 89.3 FM, Key Radio in Osage Beach, Missouri. And on shortwave, tune in to frequency 7.490 WBCQ, Monticello, Maine. This show is also available on demand as a podcast on Anchor, Spreaker, PodPoint, and PodPage. And be sure to visit the website at offgridliving.faith. And I really do appreciate you joining me today. Welcome aboard, everyone. Today I'm going to address several things that I've needed to address for the last couple of weeks. And these are suggestions from listeners, and I really do appreciate the input. And before I start on that, though, I do want to tell everyone that I do appreciate all my listeners, and I do appreciate any feedback. And I have a listener named Greg who has really helped me out because I had a file move on me I didn't know about, and I put it on a podcast, and he contacted me and told me about the little glitch. And actually, it wasn't much of a glitch. It was just me being careless at that point. But I want to say thank you for having my back, and I want to thank all my listeners for supporting me and also for sending emails. And if you would like to send me an email, my email address is jim at offgridliving.faith. Jim at offgridliving.faith. Well, before I get on my topics, I do want to mention that I've been getting a lot of news reports from different sources, and all of them are basically agreeing on two issues. And the issue number one is that 
we're going to have some very bad problems with food shortages or the prices are going to be so high that you're going to have trouble even affording food. And the second issue is heating your home, being able to afford that. And there are places in the world that are going to be just out of luck. There's going to be no way to heat their homes with modern methods. So they're going to have to revert back to the old ways to try to stay warm. And I guess I'll mention here as well another common denominator of what I've been getting is that the world is about to undergo a very massive change because this Agenda 2030 garbage is getting closer. And I think that the group of satanic globalists are behind their schedule a little bit. I think that's why they're getting so vicious. They're going after people like Alex Jones and and calling anyone that's not a stark raving mad liberal a Nazi or somehow a terrorist. So it does seem like that the globalists are trying to pit one side against the other really hard right now and start something. Maybe a civil war, maybe just some civil unrest, I don't know. But it seems like the powers that be are rattling the cage right now. And they're trying to upset the apple cart, so to speak. And everyone that I listen to or talk to, now all of us are pretty much guessing because really nobody knows what's going to happen. But the consensus is, is that something really evil is up. That something really evil is afoot. And we better really watch ourselves because it seems that things could get out of hand any minute. Now, I hope that isn't the case, but everyone that I listen to or read their articles, they seem to have that common thread right through their articles or their programs. And I don't want to just be a parrot, just mimicking what I hear and what I read, but if I get a massive amount of circumstantial evidence that all points the same direction, there probably is something to that. So I'm going to add my voice to those who are saying we need to watch out for the remainder of this year, as far as be prepared for anything, because who knows what's really going to happen. I hope it's nothing bad, but I think that, in my opinion, it probably will be worse than bad. But let's just hope not. Let's just pray that it isn't. But in the meantime, let's prepare. Well, I'm going to start the show off by talking about shortwave radio reception. And I think that's a great topic because shortwave is notorious for being, I'm not going to say non-reliable, but non-consistent. That would probably be a better way to put it. And there are many reasons for that. And I'm going to go through some of the reasons, and most of them are obvious reasons, but I might come up with a reason or two that you didn't think of. Reason number one is that the power that's used by the shortwave transmitters is massive. And they're putting out a big mega signal. And they have to be such a huge mega signal to be able to make it to all the places they're trying to target. And some days are going to be better than others. Because it's well known that shortwave bounces off the ionosphere and then bounces back down to Earth. That's how it's able to travel at such long distances is because of that bouncing off the ionosphere. And so, maybe for a night or two, you have crystal clear reception. Sounds like that they're broadcasting from a mile away from your house. 
but then you might go through several days where you can't even find the station. And that gets really frustrating. And that's really the biggest hurdle that we have to overcome as shortwave listeners. I've got a few suggestions, and also I've got some comments about just how it all works. If there's lots of electrical activity going on, such as a lightning storm or even worse, sunspots, things like that, that will massively reduce your reception. So you have to take the weather conditions into account as you judge whether you're getting good reception or not. Another thing that people overlook sometimes is that different spots in your house are going to be more friendly for reception than others. There are going to be places that it's going to be impossible to pull in a shortwave station. Whereas if you move a room away or half a room away, magically it'll clear up. And so you do not want to have your receiver near your computer or cell phones that are active or anything that is throwing a signal. And also if you have your shortwave receiver next to your breaker box or, or some of your main wiring in your house, let's say the kitchen, even though the kitchen is a good place to have a radio, it's not the best place for reception if you have a very electric kitchen, such as microwaves and an electric range and electric oven and so forth and so on. And so one thing you have to do as a shortwave listener is try to find those sweet spots in your house where your reception is going to be better. Now, it's really odd. I have one room in a house that if I put the radio in one certain spot, I can listen to almost anything I want to listen to on shortwave. But if I move it five feet from that spot, sometimes even five inches, but generally five feet from that spot in that entire house, I can't receive anything. And so there is a big difference of architecture and how your house is put together with its wiring and what appliances you're using or what gadgets. And so the first thing is to find your clean room and clean as in clean for a signal. And I think I probably should have started here, but I'm going to back up and I'm going to go ahead and say this right now. If you buy a really cheap shortwave receiver for a couple of bucks, you're not going to be very happy because you do get what you pay for. And if you're serious about getting shortwave and serious about getting it clear and clean as possible, you're going to have to get one of the higher quality units that are out there that, number one, have the ability of having an external antenna, and number two, are digital so you can tune it in perfectly. And now I have two analog tuners, and I get along okay with them, but they are frustrating. Because it does seem like, I don't know if it's phase shifting or what it is, but it does seem like that shortwave signals kind of roam a little bit. And when you use an analog tuner, sometimes you have to tweak the tuning a little bit. You'll be listening to your program, it'll be coming in okay, then all of a sudden it'll fade out. Well, lots of times, if you bump the knob on the analog tuner and just move it microscopically one way or the other, it'll come back in. But I do believe that better units that are digital will solve that problem. And so that's the first thing you need to do as far as the radio is. You need to know exactly what frequency that you're tuning into, and your radio needs to tell you the exact frequency it's on. And 
I'm a fan of analog, but digital is much superior in locking a signal in perfectly to where you know that you're exactly on the right frequency. Okay, now that I've got the radio out of the way, in other words, don't be cheap. You don't have to spend a fortune, but just don't be cheap. I'm going to get on to the fact that I've just recommended a radio that, that has the capability of having an external antenna. Now, different lengths of antennas are going to receive different ways. And you can more or less tune an antenna to be really great at picking up certain frequencies. But that's not what most people want or do. Most people want a good general purpose that'll hit all of the frequencies on shortwave as even as possible. And there are several antennas that you can make. There are several antennas you can buy. I'm going to start with the making your antenna, and that's the cheapest and easiest. And lots of people use 100-foot length, and some people use 50. And it does matter. Length does matter as far as how well it's going to receive. And so maybe it would be a good idea to have several different strands of wire of different lengths. And just do a test at your own area with your own conditions to see which one works best. But for the sake of this discussion, I'm going to go with the 100 foot. If you have 100 feet of copper wire, make sure it's not shielded. And you can coil it up and just leave 10 or 15 feet, whatever it needs, to get from your radio to the main coil. Then you can take some Velcro or maybe some nylon straps or whatever and you can bind that coil together. And then in the room that has the best reception, hang that coil of wire near a window or someplace that is away from electrical outlets. And then you can just simply plug it into your radio. And that's the simplest way to do this. But it's not necessarily the best. But it is the simplest and it will work. Now there are antennas that you can buy. You can buy ring-active receiving antennas, and they're low noise, and they do really well. They're between $35 and $45 generally. And so you're going to want to do a web search on a ring-active antenna for shortwave. And there is one out there that I'm familiar with. It's a MLA-30+, and it goes from 0.5 to 30 megahertz. And it seems to be a pretty decent antenna. And so you can do a web search for the MLA-30 ring active receiving antenna. That's a good place to start. And it's medium priced and it's probably not the best one out there, but it will be better than your homemade one. But with that said, you might want to try your homemade one first because if it isn't broken, you don't have to fix it. And so I would only spend money on an antenna if your homemade antenna just isn't cutting it. Now, a real popular antenna, it's called a HamGeek mini antenna. It's 20 watt, and it goes from 5 to 55 megahertz. And it's an antenna, and it's also tunable. And so you have a lot more control with this one. You can adjust the frequency. And so this is where I was talking about the different lengths of wire picking up different frequencies better. Well, this kind of compensates for that. This kind of gives you that same effect. And also, it has 20 watts of power, and you can receive UHF and VHF frequencies. 
And one of the drawbacks I see to it, and it's not really a drawback, it just makes it more of a professional unit, is that you connect it with coaxial cable, and it's got regular coax cable like you would have an antenna like for a CB radio. It would be that size. But also, most of them come with adapters that it'll adapt from that size to whatever you're using. And so it is flexible. And this costs a little bit more money. It's probably twice as expensive as the first one. But if you're really a serious shortwave listener and you have some serious problems to overcome, you need to do a search on the HamGeek antenna and read some reviews and learn a little bit more about it. Now, me, I don't use one. I probably should. I'm using my homemade antennas, and they seem to be working just fine for me in the rooms that I listen to shortwave in. Another option that you have is you can get a high-frequency receiving loop antenna amplifier. It gets a little bit more involved because most of the time you have to end up soldering your leads onto this. And basically it's just a circuit board. And what it's designed to do is amplify your antenna. And so I would look into that too. And these active antennas are a pretty good solution for local noise and thunderstorms and that kind of thing. And they operate from 500 kilohertz to 30 megahertz. And it's not a very big amplifier. It's pretty small. And you're likely going to have to get a DC injector board to go along with this. I'm not familiar with this. I don't own this either. But I do know they're out there. And I do know that they could be a possible solution. This would probably be my third choice out of the three. Matter of fact, probably the fourth choice. Because my first choice all the time is going to be a do-it-yourself. Because I know that if you're willing to spend an hour or two, you're going to be able to get the right length of antenna wire. You're going to find that sweet spot in your house, and you're going to find the right length of antenna that's just perfect. And that'll save you shipping costs and save you some money out of your pocket. But if you have to go out and buy 100 feet of wire, that's not horribly expensive, but it's not cheap. And so you don't want to be stuck with 100 feet of wire if that doesn't work. But any non-shielded wire will work, including extension cords or speaker cords and things like that. Just make sure it's unshielded. And that's the first steps in improving reception. And I'll be back in just a second and talk about the little portables that have their own built-in antenna. Broadcasting from the United States of America, you are listening to the Living Off-Grid Power and Information Show. Now, when it comes to the small portable shortwave radios... Well, that can be a sore spot for some people. Some of the things that I'm going to talk about, you really don't want to do because you could potentially damage your radio. But there are times when you have to do things like that to get reception at all. So I'm going to say right off the bat here that I'm going to have some people that won't agree with me. I've done all of these. I've got a lot of experience doing this. And I really feel that that sometimes if there's something that you have to find as far as information if there's something you have to hear 
Sometimes you have to try certain things to try to get reception better. The little portable radios are fine little units, but a lot of them, the shortwave is just added as an extra feature to sell it, that they're still concentrating on FM and AM as in standard radio. And if the radio that you have basically has shortwave as an afterthought and it's a portable, you're going to have reception issues. I've got two portable shortwave radios. One of them does fairly well. The other one, I can only pick up two stations no matter what I do. And I can have them side by side, and I could be pulling in everything from WBCQ and WRMI on several different feeds. And on the other radio, it's just static, nothing. And so there is a difference. And again, if you're trying to do this on the cheap, then you're probably not going to be too happy. And again, you don't need to go out and spend a whole bunch of money on shortwave because you have to be a shortwave listener. It's kind of an acquired taste. If you just wake up in the morning and say, I think I'm going to try listening to shortwave, you'll flip around the dial a while and then you'll give up because that's the nature of shortwave. You have to know what you want to listen to and when it's on. And just happening on things is fairly rare. And so what I would do, and this is what I would recommend, is that everyone visit the online sites of all of the shortwave stations that you're interested in listening to. And most of them have an online feed to where you can listen to that shortwave station while you're online, on your computer or through your phone. And you could discover shortwave in that way. And so you already know which stations you want to listen to and which programs you want to listen to. And believe me, there's a lot of interesting, great things on shortwave. And I'm not trying to disparage it at all. As a matter of fact, when I listen to radio, I listen exclusively to shortwave. Because the AM and FM stations in my area have different PSAs about every other minute that tell me that I'm too white and I'm a bigot and the children are starving and it's my fault. And I'm just sick of the propaganda on the traditional AM and FM bands. And my brain has had enough. I'm not going to listen to that garbage anymore. And so I'm going to go on to shortwave. And I really love shortwave. I think it's my medium of choice by far. But I also know it's not for everybody. But first, before I talk about improving the reception on these portables, I think you need to, if you have the ability to, go online and look up WWCR and look up WRMI and WBCQ and KVOH. And those are the main big ones in the United States. There's several others, but those are the ones that you're more likely going to run into. And then there's all sorts of great stations all over the world. And you can search them out and find out which radio station you want to listen to, and then how realistic it's going to be that they're going to have a signal aimed at your direction. And that's another thing I forgot to mention in the first part, is sometimes the signal is aimed away from you. Now, if you happen to live in central Nebraska, like I do, nobody shoots a signal my way. I just happen to catch a signal that's heading somewhere else. Most of the good signals are either north of me or south of me. And every once in a while, on a good night, I get to hear everything crystal clear. But about two or three days a week, if I didn't know any better, I'd get real frustrated. And so on a consistent basis in my location, I have to have an antenna to listen every day. And when I do listen every day, there are some days I listen for four or five hours a day. 
There's other days I listen for 10 minutes and just give up. And so you have to know that shortwave is not a perfect medium, but I think it's the best thing we have out there for freedom and free speech. I think that shortwave is where that lives. And I think the more people that are tuning in and the more programs that actually go on to shortwave, the more powerful shortwave is going to be as far as a medium, as far as the money that's going to be coming into the shortwave stations. Because let's not fool ourselves. It costs a lot of money to run a shortwave station. They are pumping hundreds of thousands of watts with the hope that there's going to be people with receivers listening. And their electricity bills are rising because of all the energy crisis and all this stuff that's man-made. And they're feeling a pinch. And so I think we need to support all of our shortwave stations because that's something that we cannot afford to let that go. That cannot go away. As a matter of fact, I'm going to state right here that I think it's our last line of defense as far as free speech is concerned. And what I see coming down the road for us is not too good. And so I think we need to have shortwave radio. And I can honestly say that the people that I listen to on shortwave, and I listen to most of the shortwave broadcasters that come in, and I glean something from all of them. I listen to Bob Beerman, of course. I listen to Beth Ann from CSC Talk Radio. I listen to Financial Survival Radio. I listen to Pastor Butch. I listen to Alex Jones. I listen to Hal Turner. There's so many great broadcasters that are doing their best out of their own pocket, by the way, including myself. All of us are putting skin in the game. Not because we want to be rich and famous, because believe me, there's really no money in shortwave. If you get enough to stay on the air, you got to count your blessings. And so all the hours that I put in recording and editing and everything, I'm really not compensated for. I'm not compensated for one bit. Because every penny that I get in donations goes right to the radio stations. But I'm not complaining, because those radio stations are the lifeline of free speech. And if I can help support them by having a program and give them some operating money, then I'm not only serving you, but I'm also serving free speech by helping keep shortwave relevant. Now with that said, I'm going to go to what I was going to talk about originally before I went on my rant. All of these portable shortwaves with built-in antennas, I would say the vast majority, if not all, are telescoping antennas. And so the first thing you'd want to do is extend your antenna all the way. Now sometimes if you extend your antenna all the way, and you're like me in my location, I have two FM stations and an AM station within five miles of me. Well, the stations aren't, but their towers are within five miles. And there are days where I'm picking up AM and FM over my short wave bands. That tells me that I have a very cheap radio, by the way. But sometimes if I extend my antenna all the way, all I get is a very crappy signal that's coming from an FM station. And sometimes it'll walk all over what's on shortwave, even though that's a shortwave band on a shortwave radio and I'm tuned to the correct frequency. The bleed over from the FM and AM sometimes can outcompete the shortwave. And again, that's because I'm so close to the towers. But also my radio doesn't reject it. So if you do extend your antenna all the way and you start picking up ghost signals and things that you don't want to listen to as far as AM and FM, 
will simply retract your antenna a little bit until that goes away. And sometimes it goes away and sometimes it doesn't. Also, I find with a portable that sometimes if you lay it on its side, it'll reject all these AM and FM stations and pick up the shortwave better. Or if I simply turn the radio half a turn or a quarter turn. If it's on a counter, just reach up and turn it a few degrees. And sometimes that helps. But when nothing helps, you have to hook an external antenna to the radio. And that's where the problems can come in. Now, it's very easy to take a bare wire and just wrap it around your existing antenna. But what you're doing is you're overpowering that signal source. And you could potentially damage your radio by doing that. And so that really isn't a good thing to do. But sometimes I've done that just to get any reception at all. But if you do decide to do that, turn your radio off or at least volume all the way down before you hook up this bare wire because the bare wire is going to throw some really wicked static into that speaker and you don't want to damage that little speaker. Then you simply coil it around a few times on your existing antenna. Then you can turn your radio back on and give it a try. But know that your signal that's coming into that radio is far greater than what it was designed to do. And so potentially you could damage your unit. If you're willing to risk a cheap radio by doing that, well, that's on you at that point. But know that I'm warning you that it's not the best thing to do. But if you're in an emergency situation and you're not getting anything else, that is something you can do. Now, a much better plan is to have a wire, and I'm going to say probably a 12-gauge or a 10-gauge wire that has the covering on it. Not bare, but still has the covering. And you can wrap that up and have the covering in between the wire and your antenna. Now you might think, well, that's going to keep it from receiving. Well, you're wrong on that. It will actually give you a much cleaner signal than connecting the wire directly to the antenna. And so if I was going to try to add to my extended antenna and add a wire, the first thing I would do is use a wire that's non-shielded but still has its covering. A shielded wire will actually harm what you're trying to do. So you just want a regular unshielded wire that still has the outer covering, has a little plastic outer covering. And then you just simply loop that around your antenna and then take the remainder of the wire. Like I said earlier, with the loop, you can loop 100 feet or whatever you want to do and just hook to that antenna that way. Now, if you're going to be using one of these tunable antennas or one of these antenna amplifiers, that's absolutely out of the question when you're talking about one of these retractable antennas that are built into a portable radio. I think it's a waste of money and a waste of time. You might even damage your radio. I'm not sure about that, but I would bet that it's not going to do it any good. And so in closing this part of the program, I want to tell people who are potentially shortwave listeners, you're going to have to have patience. You're going to have to be a little bit long-suffering. You're going to have to be willing to learn how to listen through static and through some strange things that the atmosphere can throw into the music or the talk or whatever you're listening to. Sometimes it'll put things in phase and out of phase and you'll hear a few staticky sounds and you'll have some dropouts and you'll have some hot spots. And, and so it's pretty much a primitive way to listen to radio. But me personally, I think that adds to the charm of this whole experience of listening to shortwave. But I wish everyone good luck with their shortwave receivers. 
And again, you get what you pay for. And I have to mention one more time, before you go out and spend a bunch of money, go online, visit the different websites of all these different shortwave frequencies of all these different broadcasters and check them out with their online feed. It'll be crystal clear. You'll hear everything perfect. You'll still get the same great programming and you'll learn what you like and what you don't. And once you have a favorite, something you have a goal that you want to listen to, it's so much easier to tune in an antenna or find that great sweet spot in your house that will pick up that frequency. I know that there's a place in my kitchen that's on top of, I have a freestanding range. And there's a small cupboard above that freestanding range. And if I want to listen to KVOH or WRMI, that's the only place in that whole part of the house it'll come in. Just on top of the shelf, it has to be sitting in one certain spot. Now, I don't know why that works that way. I just know that it does. And so if you're real serious about listening to shortwave, I probably would not buy a portable. I would buy a receiver that's more serious, a receiver that's built for shortwave reception primarily, that has the capability of an external antenna. Well, I hope that I've answered some questions of the email that I have, and I hope that all of these ideas that I've given you, I hope that I hope that they all work or at least one of them works to where you can enhance your shortwave listening experience. And after this break, I'll be right back, and I'm going to talk about rocket stoves and how to build them and what they're for and the importance of having a rocket stove. If you enjoy the Living Off-Grid Powered Information Show, I would ask that you consider donating to the show to help cover expenses because we don't get paid here. This is all done by donations. And... We do not take anything online as far as PayPal or any of that because of all the censorship. Not that they have shut us off, it's just I'm not going to give them the opportunity. So we're going to do it the old-fashioned way, by mail, check, money order, or if you want to put cash in a secure envelope, we would appreciate any donation, any size. Just send all your correspondence to Thunderbolt West Media, P.O. Box 163, Hershey, Nebraska, 69143. That's Thunderbolt West Media, P.O. Box 163, Hershey, Nebraska, 69143, and your support is greatly appreciated. This next song was recorded in 1902 by the Edison Military Band. Replace fear with faith.
Replace pessimism with hope. Replace despair with determination. And don't be afraid to rely on God and step out on the sea. Welcome to the second half of the Living Off-Grid Power and Information Show. I'm your host, Jim Calhoun. If I sound a little out of breath as I start recording this, this is the only time I can record this show, and I just got through unloading a whole sled full of bales. And after piling them, I came right in and hit record, so. And if I sound a little bit different, well, it's because I've been huffing and puffing. I've been working very hard on a very hot day. But this radio show means this much to me, that I'm willing to do what it takes to make sure I get it out. And every once in a while, there's a glitch here and there, and I really apologize for that. But if you would see my daily schedule of what I have to do and what I actually get done, and how late I have to work to edit these shows, uh, I have a lot of dedication. And so some of these shows are going to have a little bit of background noise. Some of the shows will have me huffing and puffing a little bit from overexerting myself, but just know that this means the world to me to be able to provide this information to you. Now, what is a rocket stove? Well, my understanding of a rocket stove is simply a stove that heats up really fast because it has really great airflow. Now, if there's another definition, you can send me an email or something and correct me, but that's what I've always known a rocket stove is, is because you can really get them to flare up. You can really get a lot of heat really fast from a rocket stove. And there are literally an unlimited amount of ways to make a rocket stove. Really, all you have to have is airflow. You could make a rocket stove out of a simple elbow in a pipe. You could make a rocket stove out of tin cans. You can make a rocket stove out of brick or mud or concrete or just scrap metal. Rocket stoves are easy to make, but I think it's really essential that you know how to make one. Now, you don't necessarily have to make one, but if you know how to make one, and we run out of electricity, and we run out of heating fuel, such as propane or natural gas or heating oil, and you have to resort to burning wood to cook your food, and you don't have a grill, well, these rocket stoves are beautiful for that. And you can make several rocket stoves if you want to have several burners. And so if you wanted to have 10 burners, you could build 10 rocket stoves and cook a huge meal for lots of people. 
I'm going to give you a couple examples of rocket stoves. And then I really highly recommend that if you have the ability to go online, is to go search out videos of how to build a rocket stove. I'm going to do my best to describe it to you in a way that you'll picture it in your mind. But one rocket stove that I've seen, and it works really good, is pretty simple to do. Now, when I'm talking about constructing a rocket stove, it's real important you get everything as airtight and snug fitting as possible. So no matter which type of rocket stove I talk about, that's one common denominator. It has to have airflow in where it's supposed to come in, and you don't want any unwanted air to come in from gaps or, let's say, ill-fitting parts. You don't want that. You want everything to be snug as possible. Now, a very simple rocket stove that won't last too long. It'll, you'll get a couple of uses out of it before it starts to rust or burn out. That's simply to have a 10 5-gallon bucket or a 2.5-gallon bucket. And then all you have to do is cut a hole. You would cut a hole towards the bottom the size of a 1-gallon coffee can, a tin can. You would trace that out and cut it out very carefully, not to have any jagged edges or have any place where air can escape to come in. Then you snugly fit the coffee can to where it goes about halfway. So you're half and half with your coffee can. It's halfway on the outside of the bucket and halfway on the inside. Then you're going to want to take a second coffee can. And you're going to want to take some tin snips or a hacksaw or something. And you're going to want to cut about two inches down from the rim. I'm going to back up right now and say these coffee cans cannot have a top or a bottom. They have to be a straight-through can. So remove the top and the bottom, and then for the second can, you'd want to cut some slits in either the top or the bottom, one or the other, so you can collapse it in just a little bit, because you're going to form-fit it inside the first coffee can that's not slit. Then you would slip the second coffee can about two inches into the first coffee can then simply all you have to do is add fuel. Light it up and you have a rocket stove. Now the opening on a five-gallon bucket is pretty large, and so the fire is going to burn pretty fast, and it's probably not going to be the most efficient stove you could make. But all you have to do is take a grill of some sort, maybe some expanded metal, or maybe the grill top of a charcoal grill, just anything that will fit on top of that five-gallon bucket opening. And that's where you would place your pans and your pots and so forth. The trouble with this kind of a stove is the distance between the fire and where you have your pots and pans. And so as a general rule, you want it to be closer. So a two and a half gallon bucket would actually work better. Or if you wanted to cut down that five gallon bucket and cut six or eight inches off of it and make it lower to where your food can be closer to the flames, that actually would help too. But I hope you can see how simple it is to make a rocket stove. A more sophisticated rocket stove, but albeit smaller, is to take a medium-sized can, like a quart or two-quart size, and put it inside a gallon-sized tin can. And in this stove, both cans would have a bottom. You would not remove the bottom. Then you could drill two holes, and you could affix stove bolts and bolt the smaller tin can direct center into the larger tin can. But before you do that, on the bottom, 
you're going to want to take one of these can openers, the type that you use to open a juice, not one of these that will cut the whole top off, but will rip into the can and leave a little triangle. So I guess a traditional can opener. Ten, you'd want to make eight to ten around the bottom. Not on the bottom, but on the side. You'd want to have, that's for airflow. Because your air is going to flow in through the top of the larger can. It'll be sucked into the bottom by vacuum from the flames. And the air will actually come through those holes that you make. And that's how it gets its airflow. And if you wanted to increase airflow even further, you could cut four to six additional holes in the first can. And then simply put a grate over the top of that. And you have a nice one burner stove. The trouble with this stove is you have to feed it from the top. So if you have water you're trying to boil and you have to add some fuel, you have to remove the pan and remove the grate, drop the fuel in, and then reassemble it. Which doesn't make it the best, but it's still very usable. And another stove that would work, it'd be slow but it would work, is use the same concept of the big can, but instead of having a small can in, have a three-wick candle. One of those larger candles that have three wicks, light all three wicks, and make sure that the tip of the flame is touching the bottom of your pan. And you'd be surprised how well you could cook with candles. But the best way to make a rocket stove that has a separate inlet to put your wood and your fuel and an open top to where the heat will rise and cook your food. Now you can get as fancy with this as you want. Some people use tin cans as molds, and they put the tin can into a plastic bag, or they put some sort of Vaseline or something on the tin can to where it can lift out of the concrete. And then they pour concrete around the tin can and use the tin can as a form. Then you simply pull the tin can out, and you'll have basically a pot, is what you're going to make out of concrete. But instead of just doing that, you're going to have to have air inlet holes. And so to make a form that would really work well, you'd have to have some air inlet, and you'd also have an inlet to put your fuel. And so let's say you're going to make one out of concrete. And again, I'm going to use a one-gallon tin can, just basically for reference. You can make these as large as you want or as small as you want. If you have several air holes that are half inch or larger, and know that the more airflow you get, the hotter you can make your fire. Then if you have an inlet that's about the size of your fist, now I'm talking again about a one gallon can. And so the place where you feed your fire can't be necessarily too awful big. But make sure it's big enough that you don't have to struggle putting things in. Some people like to put this at an angle. Instead of being an L shape, it would be more of a V shape to where you just simply drop the material you want to burn into the chute and it'll fall directly into the bottom of your fire pit. Now it might take a little bit to make a form to do this, but if you would take a wooden box and then inside that wooden box, dead center, you'd put your tin can, but you'd have holes in that tin can and in those holes you would have your air vents and also your main opening for fuel. And of course, you'd also make these removable that after the concrete is set up enough to where you can pull them out, move those forms out, and have the construction be entirely of concrete. But then again, that's a lot of work. Now, I saw one online that I really liked. Very simple. 
you may want to have a piece of paper and a pencil to jot down a picture of what I'm going to explain to you. But you know these concrete blocks that have the two holes? They're very common in foundations. You see them an awful lot. They're probably the most common gray brick there is. Just a simple concrete brick with two holes in it. You're going to be using several of these bricks. The first brick, you lay it down flat so it has a flat bottom and a flat top with the holes on the side. The next one, you're going to set it holes side up and down, vertical, directly on top of the first brick that the holes are running horizontal. Now to have an area to where you could put your fuel in, you're going to have to carefully, you're going to have to take a hammer or maybe a concrete drill or whatever you want to use. And you're going to want to take one end off of one concrete block. And so one of the outer walls on the end will be chipped away. But you don't want to chip away the side, just the outer end. That'll leave you an area approximately the width of your fist. And so what you're going to have is a block laying down on its flat with another block with the holes going up and down with one outer wall knocked out. The next brick you want to have is stand it up on end and tuck it as tight as you can up against the brick that has the side that has been removed. And so you have an inlet since you broke out the outer wall and you have an extension of that hole with that other block standing up on end. So you can reach through the hole of the one that's standing up and go straight through it and straight to the center portion you did not break out of the top brick. And you can stick your hand all the way into the stove. Then you simply add your fuel and the second hole you would not use. So it's just that first hole that you chip the end off of. That's your firebox. You can put your material in from on top to start the fire. Once it started, you would feed it. You would feed it through the block that's standing on end. And then you're going to want to put a metal spacer to where you can put a pot or a pan on top of that metal spacer instead of just on top of the brick. Because if you put it on top of the brick, you're going to kill your airflow and the fire will go out. So it needs that airflow. So you've got to have probably a quarter to a half inch space all the way around. You're going to want to have a quarter to a half inch of space. And that will allow the airflow to be just perfect. And that's a very simple stove that if you have some concrete blocks laying around, you can literally build that in 10 minutes. And if you want to make that into a two burner stove, all you have to do is chip out the other end of the block that you already chipped one end out of. Now that makes that block pretty flimsy, only having a center brace. But if you do that, you can use both holes and make a two burner stove. You can make a stove out of anything that's round or square. You can make it out of anything that's non-flammable. You can make a great rocket stove out of solid bricks. You just simply follow the same principle, having an opening for your fuel, an opening for some airflow, and a place on top for the heat to go to keep your pots and pans from smothering the fire and some expanded metal or some other type of a grill. Now, if you want to grill meat or something, you don't even need that spacer because the airflow will be just fine. So if you're cooking sausages or hot dogs or steaks or hamburgers or something, you would just use it as a regular grill. 
Just know that these rocket stoves can get really hot really fast. And so to keep the heat constant, you have to really tend the fire. It's a good idea not to leave these unattended. And also, I have to add right here, always have firefighting equipment handy, such as a fire extinguisher or a garden hose with a water source. Just anything that can put out a fire, because we are dealing with an open flame. Now this isn't something that I think everyone should use on a day-to-day -day basis, but I think it's something that everyone should have the ability to make and use in an emergency. Now you would not want to use this in your house. I want to make that perfectly clear. And also you don't want to use this on a wooden floor. So always use your rocket stoves on concrete or rock or dirt. And don't use a rocket stove near a bunch of dry vegetation because you don't want to start a fire. But if you follow all fire safety standards, you should be okay with a rocket stove. But what would happen if you wanted to heat your house with this? Well, first of all, don't. Do not heat your house with a rocket stove. And so under no circumstances, use a rocket stove for heating your house. In future episodes, I'll talk about heating your house safely. But a rocket stove is meant, in my opinion, more for cooking. And if anyone else out there has any other ideas on rocket stoves or anything else, please send me an email at jim at offgridliving.faith, and I'll be more than happy to look into it and put it on a future program. You know, when we're talking about rocket stoves and talking about different ways of being able to survive all sorts of different disasters and things that are coming that I think are coming anyway. I shouldn't definitively say they're coming when I don't know, but I suspect it. And I think that we all need to get our skill set in order. So in other words, be prepared. Make sure you have everything you need to survive. And it goes well beyond food and water. That includes safety, personal protection, tools, supplies, Everything you could possibly think of, you need to have at least a contingency plan of how you're going to handle certain situations. Now, I do know that when things happen, plans sometimes just go out the window. I, I do understand that. But it's better to have a plan because you do have your head in the game. I've been reading a lot of articles lately, and most of the articles are desperately trying to wake people up. I just now read an article, and it states that the majority of the American people are just zombies, and they have no idea what's coming, and they're too preoccupied at being at parties and having fun, and so thus they're not prepared for anything, nothing, just absolutely zero preparations. And I think the haves and the have-nots right now pertains to money, but I think within the next 12 months, the haves and have-nots is going to pertain to a whole lot more than that, including food and shelter and security of any type at all. But I do know one thing that is certain. Society is breaking down. People are quicker to anger, and they're a lot less civil, and people seem to escalate the smallest things. And I guess the old term making a mountain out of a molehill really applies here, but that's going on everywhere. And then with illegitimate Joe declaring that 
at least half the Americans are a threat to the country. It seems to me like the powers that be, the satanic globalists and leftists, they don't care if we're at war with ourselves. They don't care if we're at war with Russia or China. They don't care, just as long as we're at war. And now you have the Pope coming out saying that we've started World War III. So I don't know what to tell you other than keep your head up, keep praying, keep your faith, and keep preparing. I really don't know what to tell everybody about preparing other than keep an eye on China, keep an eye on Russia, keep an eye on illegitimate Joe in the White House, keep an eye on the FBI, keep an eye out for government corruption and tyranny, keep an eye out for plagues. Can you imagine the shape that this world is in? It was all man-made. All of this did not need to happen. And so we have a very evil bunch of people out there. And I can't even guess the next shoe that's going to drop. But I do know that change is in the air. Something's in the ether. So everyone, just stay alert and keep your powder dry. Well, I hope that you got something from this show today. It's my intention to be helpful and try to be a blessing to everyone. And hopefully I'm getting that job done. Now, one of the worst things I have to do is ask for donations. I'm not that type of a person that asks for donations very easily. But I have to be upfront and honest about it because this is the only way I can keep broadcasting. Because it does cost me an awful lot of money and more time than you could possibly imagine to put these shows out. And I don't make any money. I don't charge anybody anything. I'm not on anyone's payroll. But if you enjoy this show, I would please ask for you to consider donating to the show. Any amount will help. And I take checks and money orders. And you'd write the check out to Thunderbolt West Media. And you would mail to Thunderbolt West Media. P.O. Box 163. P.O. Box 163. Hershey, Nebraska. Hershey, Nebraska, and the zip code is 69143. And I really do appreciate you listening, and I appreciate the support that I received more than you possibly can imagine. And so again, if you want me to continue doing these shows, your support is vital. Well, that pretty well wraps up this show. And so until next time, stay safe, stay strong, Stay positive, keep your powder dry, but most important of all, replace fear with faith. This is Jim Calhoun with the Living Off Grid Power and Information Show. The song Step Out on the Sea is performed by Brit Small and Festival. Thank you for listening to Thunderbolt West Media.